Here we are again for another week of carpool q and I'm not here with Pastor Tom. Who's this? Pastor Craig Island. Do you want to introduce yourself, Craig? Craig is the, the founding pastor of Hope Reformed Baptist Church, mm-hmm. and he's currently pastoring in the States at Journey Christian yeah, Church. Yeah, Journey Christian Church. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, tell us a bit about yourself, Craig. Yeah, uh, well, how much do I tell? I've been a Christian for about 23 years been in vocational ministry about 20 years, uh, planted a church back in 2008, Hope Reform Baptist Church, mm-hmm. um, moved out to originally East Texas with my family in 2017, handed the church off, and uh, worked in church revitalization for about three and a half years, and then the last couple of years I've been in upstate New York, pastoring uh, a church in Rochester, New York, so um, very similar church to Hope Reform Baptist in that it's yeah, it's, it's reformed, it's evangelical, it's missional. Um, it's kind of a, a medium-sized church. A few hundred people gather each Sunday. So we're really blessed to be there. And we're, you know, we're excited to see what God's doing. Mm. Oh, good. So if you're watching this today, lungs a bit weird. If you're watching this today on Wednesday, the 14th, today is Hope's birthday. This day, 14 years ago, Hope Reformed Baptist Church was founded by this guy privilege to have him here in the ride and uh, today I'm gonna to be asking Craig some questions around how he planted the church and then a, a bit later um, even the history of the Reformed Baptist tradition and yeah just more questions around church planting from from someone who's done it so we've got rid of Tom got rid of that yeah. guy yeah uh, I don't know who, who <laughs> got him in here but we're glad to have you here Craig first question now this is actually requested by uh, one of our members I won't say who okay how do you rate Tom's preaching? <laughs> and was it Tom that asked me? <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I won't disclose that information. Yeah. Um, as far as content is concerned, Tom is uh, first class. Um, delivery, Tom's Tom's improving rapidly. Um, very engaging, uh, enthusiastic, has a good, a good amount of zeal to him. And yeah, I think he. I think for you know, honestly, the sky's the limit for someone like Tom because I think he comes to the comes to the game with some natural proclivities to, to speak publicly. I didn't. I was a stunner. I couldn't really speak in public. I had to really work at it. I see I see in Tom a, a real confidence there that's not, it's not common. And so I see him developing that gift and, and improving all the time. And it's such an important part of what it means to have a healthy church is to have a, a very zealous, a very accurate, a very faithful Bible expositor. Yeah, nice. I thought you were going to roast him, but it's... Uh, I have to be honest. Yeah, I wanted to roast him, but I, I have to be honest. Yeah. yeah, it's good to have encouraging mentors. No, that's good. Okay, first, getting into some real questions. Okay. Um, can you just tell us the history of planting Hope Reform Baptist Church? Maybe as early as you know the first seeds of wanting to be yeah, in the wow. ministry to then planting it to then the first couple of years of, of growth. Like, just just tell us how that went. Yeah, so I'd been a youth pastor at, uh, at, a, at an Assemblies of God church, so a Pentecostal church for um, a little over four years, and had a great time doing that, really enjoyed that, saw our youth ministry grow, saw people come to faith, just had a real fruitful season, um, and my theology was evolving in this time, um, particularly to kind of understand Reformed theology better, doctrine of salvation, doctrine of God's sovereignty, those sorts of things were initially very challenging for me. In fact, I was quite resistant. I think it took me about a year of uh, reading scripture, studying the Bible, reading good theologians that write sympathetically of the reformed position before I could really start to actually not just comprehend it, but to, to kind of count myself among their number as a, as a reformed believer. And so 
that kind of that signaled my time coming to an end at the, the Pentecostal church. Although I still have a lot of great friends that are in Pentecostal churches, I don't I don't anathematize them. Mm. But I had undergone such a significant change in my theology, my methodology, and ministry philosophy that uh, I thought a change in ministry setting was really important for me. Now I initially thought I was going to give up the the youth pastoring and go and be a missionary overseas. That was really the drive of my heart. So you were youth pastoring at a Pentecostal church? Yeah, yeah. for yeah. about four and a half years. Right. And I thought I could give that up and I could go over to um, Southeast Asia somewhere and plant churches and, and be a missionary. Um, but it really wasn't, it really wasn't seemingly, the Lord wasn't opening a door. I didn't really have the support at the time of uh, people in my life. They weren't really affirming that, so to speak. And so I, I hate putting it like this, but the truth is, I kind of planted a church almost out of spite. I was so frustrated that I couldn't go and be this glamorous missionary. I guess I'd romanticized it in very unhealthy ways. Right. And so um, I resigned my position as a youth pastor around about March of 2008. As the year was kind of rolling on through the um, through the winter months, June, July, and August, I, I, I mean, I was preaching here and there. I did some youth camps. I preached some Sunday services at different churches. But I had this hunger to be in vocational ministry. I had this drive to be on the mission field. The mission field, the doors were just simply not opening. And so I, I said to my wife one day, why don't we go and rent some space at the community hall and start a, a weekly service? Um, and I, I think part of me was thinking, it'll flop and then the door will open for me to go and do. Like it's just something I've got to try and then I can give it up and I can go be a missionary. Something but to do in the meantime. Kind of, yeah, kind of. But. Mm. The Lord had other plans, um, and you know, as as they say, on the 14th of September we started, and the rest is is history. Yeah, right. Now, some people have been following the, the carpool series. Yeah, okay. so, something something that Tom was big on is that church plants starting from a church sending someone to plant it. Mm, yeah. Um, yep. How how do you think about that? Did you look for someone to send you, or how would you respond to that kind of critique of your church plan? Well, the critique's totally valid. Yeah. So, like, philosophically, some people have used the phrase, you parachute in. It's like the parachute trooper that lands in enemy territory and starts a work from scratch, like starts an offensive out of nothing. That can happen. It happens in the Bible, and it can happen, but it's not the healthiest way to plant a church. And yeah. it's really, I, I would say, it's not even the most prudent way to plant a church. Um, but that's what we did. And God blessed it. And what we did was we ensured that each time we planted out of hope, which hopes just planted a new church, we're excited to see that. Yep. The model you just is preached a, that I just preached that. Yep. Yeah. And, and the model is to send, to equip, mobilize, and send, rather than a parachute in model, which um, comes with a lot higher risk, a lot greater, you know, troubles and, and issues arise. And uh, that's what we did initially. And sometimes churches just have to do it that way. But the critique is very valid. It's not ideal. Not ideal. Yeah. So as as you planted this church, um, yeah, tell us about just the the beginnings and the foreground and the the kind of grunt work. I mean, yeah. Ministry is grunt work, but true. Yeah. Just like those first few months, first couple of years. How how were you developed as as a preacher, as a pastor, and how was your congregation kind of formulated and brought together by God? Yeah, I think one of the most important features of of our church plant was how extremely slow any progress was. Mm. So we, our first service, we had six people turn up. Uh, my wife, myself, uh, one of my wife's good friends from, from, from way back in high school, she invited her, she came, and my wife's parents turned up. And, um, mm. and that was it, right? 
but we didn't advertise, we didn't tell anyone, we didn't really make it known that we were doing this. Um, we just trusted God and the going was extremely slow. So those first three or four months, we averaged three people a Sunday. So we, our first service was six, we grew to three, shrunk right back and halved ourselves. And those three each Sunday included my wife who was gracious enough to lead on guitar a couple of worship songs. And then I'd jump up and my wife would be sitting in front of me and some other random would be sitting there. Um, often just walk off the street, right, and come in and see what all the fuss is about. And then they wouldn't come back. And that was kind of the going for months. And um, it was kind of tough. It was like, is God in this? Is this what God wants of us? Is this really his plan? If this is his plan, then I'm content with it. I can I can live with this. But I, I, I probably had some delusions of grandeur that the thing would explode. We'd be in revival. We'd have thousands. And the going was really tough. In fact, I would say the going was slow and tough for about the first six and a half, seven years. Yeah, right. So by the end of the first year, we were about 23. And that felt like we're getting some stability, right? We're getting regular offerings where I weren't having to pay the rent out of my own pocket, you know. Um, by the second year, we're kind of around 30 and they actually were giving enough in offerings to give me a little bit of a salary, small, just a small stipend, but it was enough. Yeah. And each year was very slow and progressive, up to 40, 45. 2015 was the year, I, I, I describe it as the year of explosion. That's when hope really took on and became what, developed the identity that it was known for between the years 15, 2015, 16, and 17. And of course, seeing that recaptured today is really encouraging. Yeah, wow. It, it, during that time, how did you see personally your theology develop or change or shift? You, you said you started out Pentecostal, but when you were planting, yeah. you were kind of were you leaning reformed. Were you reformed? Yeah. Leaning. You, leaning, leaning, Yeah, I, um, I think then I thought I was reformed. Right. But really, at that point, my my reformed convictions had risen to the level of knowing that there are five points that are often described as Calvinistic knowing you know maybe some more celebrity type reform characters like a like a john piper or rc Sproul or john MacArthur, trying to consume as much of their literature and content as i could but really not having any any sort of superstructure in my theology and i think one of the biggest things that really assisted me was when i first began reading systematic theology like reading cover to cover tomes of theology that systematize and organize doctrines in order of priority in order, order of revelation in order of consequence that was really significant. So in those early years, in fact, for the first whole year of the existence of Hope Reformed Baptist, we didn't take communion because I didn't know what I believed about communion, right? right? So technically, in um, kind of a Reformed, in Reformed kind of you know, terms, we weren't really even legitimately a church because we weren't administering sacraments. Yeah, okay. But I was reading Reformed guys that had kind of an open communion view, a, view, a, a closed communion view, a guarded communion view, members only, uh, how often, like, you know, traditional Presbyterians from centuries ago had it once a year, it was your communion season. Uh, other church traditions are like, it has to be weekly or you're profaning the sacrament, right? I was being bombarded by all of these different perspectives and ideas. I didn't know where I landed, so I just didn't want to mess it up. I was kind of terrified of doing it wrong. And yeah. so we didn't do it. So there were like, I was evolving as a, as a minister, as a preacher, as an exegete of scripture throughout this entire time. And that's also when I embarked on formal theological education in that time as well and started reading more substantive literature and academic literature that helped me to continue to develop as a, you know, as a thinker and as a theologian. Mm. Yeah, great. Something else that Tom's been big on throughout this series is having a plurality of eldership. Um, yep. So you kind of started out by yourself. Was there a time when you were really grouped with that reality and brought other pastors onto the scene at, at, 
your own church or how how did that come about yeah no from day one i wanted a plurality of elders like i, I that was one thing that for me it made sense really early on yeah <clears throat> um but the challenge is when you're parachuting in to plant a church um is you don't have like we were seeing people come off the street and get saved so they were like they were a, an inch into their christian life couldn't really ordain them as deacons let alone elders yep. we had to let them mature you know let them grow so i believe it was early 2010 when we began appointing our first elders two two um, men alongside me where yep. we developed three elders so that took about a year and a half i would like that have to have been a lot quicker it wasn't but when we got elders it was quite a relief for me because i knew that was the biblical model of church governance that's really what honored god and it's the healthy model of church governance so mm. it really began to stabilize us as a church as well having that yeah no, good and i think even tom would say with plurality of elders and also with being sent from a church it's it's there are extreme circumstances where it's not ideal but um yeah we've got to work with what we've got yeah exactly yeah yeah touching on kind of your development as a theologian as a preacher as a as a thinker can you just, can you just bring us back what is reformed theology and maybe more mm. specifically what what does it mean to be a reformed baptist what what is that yeah Reformed Baptist is kind of a novel term. It, it's fairly new, and it is also fairly nebulous. So I'm going to offer what I think should be the way in which the, the term is understood. Um, but then maybe like more historically, those that were of Reformed Baptist leanings in the you know the 1600s and the 1700s, particularly in the British Isles and somewhat on the continent, they were more often known as Baptistic Congregationalists. So their church polity their ecclesiology was a congregational ecclesiology they they understood that ultimately the buck stops with the ordained elders who have been affirmed and put in place by the congregation yeah so the congregation really have the final say on who governs rules and shepherds them and they're there to keep their elders accountable and support love and, and honor them and the elders role is to shepherd well to uh, to execute the duties of protecting the flock expositing the word and so on and so forth so it's really just in the last little while that we've started to use this phrase reformed baptist so as to distinguish ourselves baptists that are of the reformed ilk consider themselves to be part of the the broader reformation yep that's kind of challenging guys on the more uh pedo baptist side of that discussion don't always want to embrace reformed baptists as being part of that tradition and i i get the tension there and so baptistic congregationalists with a congregational kind of ecclesiology a baptistic sacramentology their view of the actual ordinance of baptism to be conferred upon those that give a credible profession of faith that's what baptistic means right and so these days honestly when you hear the phrase oh he's reformed in fact i did it just a moment ago he's reformed john piper's reformed john MacArthur's reformed there should be some pushback because although those guys are extremely godly men who know the word and have been profoundly used of god in the mission of our day I would actually prefer them not to be described as technically reformed because they don't subscribe to a reformed confession. For me, that's where the line should probably be drawn. Not that I'm trying to, I'm trying to out anybody. I'm not trying to exclude anybody, but I think terms have more use when their definitions are narrower. And I yep. think to be reformed and Baptist means you probably embrace, or let's just say, to be reformed generally, yep. you're probably someone that embraces one of the one of the reformed confessions. The, the Belgian Confession, the, the, the Westminster Confession, um, the Augsburg Confession, the London Baptist Confession, the Savoy Declaration. If you hold to one of these confessions, 
now there's debates on how strict are you a subscriptionist, right? Every letter, jot and tittle, or, or rather the spirit or the essence of it. We're not going to get into that, right? But if you look at a confession and say, this is really what helps me. These are my guardrails as I understand scripture. I live out the implications of the text. I think Reformed is a good appellation to use for someone like that. If someone's just Calvinistic, big view of God, um, low view of man's will, God has to elect, God has to initiate salvation. I think better off to use the adjective Calvinistic and leave reform for those that really do subscribe to a confession, which no doubt someone's going to ask. My confession would be the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. I think it's a wonderful work. It's not inerrant. It's not of the highest authority. Only scripture is that, infallible and inerrant. But it is my guardrails that keeps me within my tradition, understanding how the scripture has been interpreted previously and helps me to, to be in continuity with that tradition. Yeah. With these Reformed confessions, mm. um, how did you personally arrive at London Baptist Confession? Was that through people who were influencing you or just stuff you're reading or uh... yeah I so I initially didn't know there was a Baptist confession as I was as I was engaging my first forays into kind of the reform world the Puritan world the Magisterial reformers I was really attracted to and spent a lot of time studying the Westminster confession which is of course the quintessential Presbyterian confession yeah. put together by uh, the Presbyterians in Westminster Assembly That'd and be the more well-known yeah confession. yeah most certainly yeah, yeah. Um, especially in reform circles, right? Yeah. So uh, it was later on I realized there's, there's there's a Baptistic edition of it. So if we could you know, speak quite frankly, the London Baptist Confession is not very different to the Westminster. It really only differs on those main points of Baptistic you know, difference as far as the Presbyterian church polity and, of course, the sacramentology. So I discovered a little later on, and of course I rejoiced to find what I thought was this is the Westminster still, at least in essence and spirit, but it's Baptistic in its ecclesiology and its sacramentology, and uh, that's when we first introduced it at Hope Reformed Baptist Church as part of our liturgy yeah. in the Sunday service. Was that fairly early on in the church? Or no, it... probably 2011 we started doing that, so yeah, I, guess, okay. I guess early on, yeah. but uh, because my history goes back to 2008, I sort of consider that kind of halfway into the journey yep. um, of, of the church. Yep. So, so you would say to be reformed, you have to hold to a confession. I would like to believe that that's the best way to use the word reformed. Yeah, okay. I don't want to come across, you know, cantankerous on that issue. Yeah. Um, I just think reformed and Calvinistic should have different nuances of meaning. Yeah. yeah and if yeah. we're just using them for the same, the same purpose and to describe the same thing, then one of them's redundant and, and they become useless. I think that reformed could be one step up from just general generic Calvinistic, which is where I would put someone like John Piper, who I don't mind considering him a hero of my faith and my journey. It was so helpful. I've read almost everything he's ever written, Yeah. but he's not confessional and he's not ashamed to be not confessional. It's not something he's wrestling with. It's just where he's at. Yeah. Um, and yet I think he's a wonderful gift to the church and I do recommend his resources. But I think if you can actually subscribe yourself to a confession, that's when you're entering into the kind of that stratosphere of being reformed. And which of the confessions would be Baptist confession? Or do the do the Reformed confessions differ much? They well, you know, they, they differ because they tend to represent their tradition. So the Augsburg okay. Confession represents the Lutheran tradition. The Thirty Nine Articles represents the Anglican tradition. Yep. Westminster, obviously Presbyterian. Savoy Declaration, more independent Congregationalists, um, and and Continental Reformed is probably more the the Belgic Confession. So they're each representing a specific Christian tradition. 
of the kind of the broad reformed umbrella, right? And the Baptists generally coming out of congregational um, churches that began to move into more Baptistic ideas of how do we administer this sacrament of baptism, probably not to infants who haven't given any credible profession of faith, because not only does not does that not cohere with the example in the New Testament, there's no explicit or even inference of, of a command to do that. So Baptists early on began to distinguish themselves, and so they took the Westminster, reworded parts of it that they thought needed improvement, and so we got the first and the second London Baptist Confession of Faith. Yeah. Cool. I wanted to ask some questions around prayer. Okay. Um, particularly if you're still watching this, today's the Pope's birthday. So if, if our ministry, if Hope's ministry has blessed you in any way whatsoever, today can be a day of thanksgiving to God for yeah, sustaining his church and planting his church and building his people. Um, and particularly I wanted to ask around prayer, mm. what are the specific ways we can be praying and our listeners and our, our church can be praying for a church plant? Yeah. What should be on the prayer list? Yeah. Yeah, I think that like church plants are unique not just unique in operation and function, but they're also unique in the trials and tribulations that they undergo. Normally ministers that are working in church plants are overworked with little reward and, and, and often very kind of thin appreciation. Mm. So pray for those ministers, pray that God would encourage them, that he would give special portions of his spirit and grace to help them to, to keep on keeping on. I think also the vulnerability of a church plant is something that should should feature strongly in, a, in prayer. like. Like church plants are not like established churches where there's a regular offering, there's a regular critical mass that turns up week in and week out. Church plants, like I experienced this in the early days of Hope's church plant, some days you would have a crowd that you would consider to be quite healthy, 30, 40, 50 in those early days. And then the next Sunday you've got four and you just think to yourself like, well, this thing's done. Like, you know, shut up shop, close it up, we're, we're yep. done. You know, like that can be kind of soul destroying, right? And so, so in church plants, one thing that often is not maybe appreciated as much as it ought to be is the feeling of vulnerability for the ministers and the volunteers and the support staff in an environment where it feels like this thing could be over in a moment's notice it could be overnight this thing crashes and burns and then it's it's kind of done for so be praying i think for god's protection the persevering grace of god that growth would come the right kind of growth new conversion growth rather than a lot of transfer growth which isn't always very healthy in a church plant we can maybe get into that later on but the challenge is that the people that are involved would have a would have a long-winded attitude. They'd be patient and wait for those glory days. So I said before that when we started in 2008, it was rough going with very little, you know, harvest and fruitfulness until 2015 when it just exploded. We we were doubling every six months for about a year and a half. Wow! And so the exponential growth um, really began to to help me to look back on those early formative years of great struggle and vulnerability with thankfulness for those times and what they did to you know help me to, to strengthen my resolve mm. and to sanctify me of course through all that pain and, and, and torment yeah but also being patient for those days when God does bring in his harvest because I believe God has that as as his plan for every healthy Bible loving teaching church mm. yeah how should the prayer life of a person in a church plan what does that look like practically prayer life yeah I don't know if it should look like different to the prayer life of a person in an established church I yeah. I think as Christians we're all striving to be people who pray more and people who pray better like people mm. whose prayers are more devoted more desperate more scripture saturated um, steeped in appreciation and thankfulness to God and making our petitions made known to him in Christ's name like 
If you're in a church plant, of course your prayer will take on the tincture, the color, the shade of being in a church plant. Yeah. So you're going to pray specifically. But even if you know some of our listeners are in an established church and they're wondering, well, what does it look like for me? Well, you can still pray many of those prayers. Like your pastor's probably burnt out. You volunteers are probably exhausted. Mm. People turn up each week and wonder whether it's still worth it. Like even churches that have been around for decades. I've worked in church revitalization of a church that was 50 years old. And it was still had elements of vulnerability and challenge and trial that made you think we, we really can't take our foot off the, the, the gas here. We really can't lose our vigilance here. We, we do have to maintain our desperation in prayer and our dependence upon God mm. or the whole thing's done for. It's over. Yeah. And how should, how should evangelism and outward proclamation, maybe more so outside the church and on the streets, how should that, how should that look for a church? Yeah, for any church. <laughs> Evangelism has always got to be explicit gospel proclamation that anticipates a positive response. Now, that sounded canned and prepackaged because I've used that line a thousand times. You said it, yeah. Yeah, in, in, in sermons I've preached, resources and books that I've written, uh, seminars and, and, and training environments that I've been engaged in, is to make sure that firstly we define what evangelism is because if evangelism's everything, then it's nothing. Now, that's true for everything. Like, like it was only a few years ago that we started seeing the word gospel used as an adjective for everything, right? Well, you know, Sam, you and I, this is gospel commuting, what we're doing right now. And, and, uh, and you know, and, and right now I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to gospel wave my hand and I'm going to gospel talk to my neighbor. And this is a gospel conversation or gospel mowing your lawn. If it becomes everything, it's really nothing. You're not, mm. you're not adding anything to the act of itself. And so I think it's the same for evangelism. We have to be really cautious that we don't try and make everything evangelism and thus lose the very thing that we're in, intending to accomplish, which is evangelism. So I've always preferred, it's going to be a surprise to no one, a more narrower definition so that we know when we're either doing it or not doing it. Yeah. We, we know what it looks like when we're engaged and we know what it looks like when we're disengaged. And so for me, again, I'll repeat it. Evangelism is explicit gospel proclamation that anticipates a positive response. That means that anything we do that's a witness or that's loving our neighbor or that's humanitarian or caring, it's not actually evangelism. It's still good and it's still wholesome and it's a, it's a worthy Christian endeavor, but you can't call it evangelism until there's been an explicit gospel proclamation. So I can go over my neighbor's house and maybe he's had an accident and I, I mow his grass for him and I say, that's an, that's an act of evangelism. But it's really not. It's an act of love and it's an act of care and concern and that's good. Mm. It doesn't rise to the level of evangelism until I've actually communicated the gospel explicitly. Because mm. my neighbor may be an unbeliever, completely uninitiated in the things of the Christian faith and may not append an act of mowing his grass with, this is Jesus loving me. I have to do that for him. Yeah. So that's the first component of the definition I'm using. It's explicit gospel proclamation. The second component, it anticipates a positive response. The reason why that's important to me is because I've encountered a lot of evangelists, particularly street preachers and bullhorn type preachers, that do explicitly articulate the gospel. They do it as a way to condemn people. Like it's almost like an act of aggression for them, right? Like you've probably been out in the streets and kind of seen this or maybe some YouTube videos of someone on a university campus screaming hell and damnation and fire and brimstone on the, on the Sodom and Gomorrah of the city or the community. I think to myself, there's a place for that. I'm not anti that in principle. But again, I wouldn't call it evangelism. I would call it condemnation. I would call it declamation. I would have a lot of things to call it. But it's not evangelism until I'm actually anticipating a positive response in my hearer. That right. is, I'm communicating the good news as though it's actually good news. Yeah. 
Like if I found out you won the lottery and for some reason I was commissioned to be the one to communicate that to you and I shouted it to you like you're actually, you've, you've actually incurred the wrath of God, you would wonder why I'm, it, would, it would be inconsistent with the message, the, the tone. Tom talked about this last read, right? Truth and tone. Mm. It's not one or the other. It has to be both, truth and tone. And so I like to say that evangelism being the explicit gospel proclamation, anticipating a positive response, because that helps to inform the tone at which I'm doing evangelism. Am I telling my neighbor the gospel as a means of saying, you've won the lottery, it's Jesus, he's come to pay the penalty that your sins have incurred, you are careering toward eternal damnation, he has intervened in his life, death, burial, and resurrection, all you need to do is by faith receive him. If I can communicate that in a way that anticipates the spirit working through those words, an act of faith in that person's heart. Again, I'm not saying everyone gets saved every time you preach the gospel, but I am saying that you should believe and hope and pray and with faithful expectancy anticipate a response, then it becomes evangelism. Yeah, right. Why is it only evangelism when we have that outlook? Surely it could be evangelism if we're saying the right words with a, with a weird inward... Uh... Like like we're saying it because we like we want to win a debate or because we're... Yeah. upset at the person or their lifestyle confronts us and so like Jesus is going to send you to hell like Westboro Baptist Church type you know the Westboro Baptist Church I don't know the guys that were like picketing funerals of soldiers in America and picketing churches and um, really profane signs of you know with you know quite yeah. explicit language and they were a Baptist church trying they thought that was evangelism mm. now I don't doubt that God can use that to convert someone the question is not can God use anything, even a donkey, to convey his message? We already know God can do that. The question is, for you, that means we're, we're, we're locating the question of evangelism in the heart of the communicator. Are you doing evangelism? Does God want to honor what you're doing as communicating and heralding the good news to those that desperately yeah, right. need it? Yeah, that's great. Yeah, very good. So, okay, you were involved in vocational ministry in America. Yep. in church revitalization. Can you talk to us about that a bit? Going in there, revitalizing churches, what, what are the things you look for in a healthy church and how do you bring to life again um, healthy churches? So yeah, I, to me it boils down to, to two clear metrics or, or, or two clear objectives, right? Whether it's a church in need of revitalization, whether it's a church that's in concept and needs planting, right? Or whether it's a well-established, perfectly healthy church that's been humming along for a while. To me, there are two objectives or, or, or two ways to, to delineate what makes a healthy church, right? And the first one, for me, is continuity with the New Testament. So the church has already been founded by the apostles in the first century. We're not doing something new. Even if I plant a brand new church, I'm continuing what the apostles did. There is no other church than the one that Jesus founded or is founded on Jesus as the, as the cornerstone and is pioneered by the foundation of the prophets and the apostles mm. in the first century. So continuity is important. And continuity is more than just like an abstract idea. Like, well, we're a Christian church. What happened at Ephesus or Antioch or Corinth? They're also Christian churches. So the continuity exists. It's actually more in substance because it then begins to communicate, are you doing church in the same way or with genuine continuity of those churches? Like, do you preach the same message? Do you have the same baptism? Are you ordering your church in the same way as far as eldership and membership? And mm. So it becomes a much bigger question. Are you in conformity to the New Testament church? So, you know, down on the corner, the, uh, the Church of Latter-day Saints, the Mormon church, they call themselves Christian and they genuinely believe they're in conformity 
with the apostles of the New Testament. They, they, they're in continuity with it. Mm. But I say they fail because not only their doctrine, but their order of service, their liturgy, their practice, their governance, everything is at odds with the revelation of God in Scripture. And so mm. their continuity is false and artificial, and it's a delusion. So for yep. me, when I'm pastoring a church, I'm saying, are we doing it the way of the apostles? We can't outsmart the apostles of Jesus. Now, I recognize contextualization is important. Uh, you know, I'm preaching in English in Australia, or I'm pastoring in America. I'm not speaking the Koine Greek of Achaia in Corinth like Paul did. So there's components of contextualization where we have freedom, but the essences and the core of who a church is and what it does, does not change. We don't reinvent the wheel here. We follow in continuity with the New Testament. Now, the second one, I said there was two. The second one is great commission engagement as the metric of a church. Mm. That it actually takes serious the final command of Christ just before his ascension, that we would be missionaries and emissaries of his gospel cause in all the world, teaching all that he commanded, baptizing in the triune name of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that we would see the great commission as our primary objective for existing. Now, churches exist to do a lot of things and to accomplish a lot of purposes, but if you don't acknowledge that the great commission is the thing you do, it's everything else is everything else orbits around everything else is peripheral to great commission engagement then i don't consider you to be a healthy church and i also funnily enough don't consider you to be in continuity with the new testament church those two are not two different things they really are hand in hand the one and the same thing i think the new testament church time and again proves to us that they are all about seeing souls saved with the faithful articulation of the gospel baptizing the converts planting new churches rinse repeat time and again mm. so the church could be well established but have diverted from that in some small or some large way mm. the church could be on its deathbed and actually need you know kind of the the, the defibrillator paddles brought out and you know to mm. be shocked back into life or the church could just be in conception like maybe we're just thinking and praying about what a new church plant would look like we need to keep those things central in every instance and at every time yeah I've heard people talk about this in terms of like the the marks of a church. Sure. Yeah. 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 Are you asking me what they are? Yeah. What are, what yeah. are the three marks of a, of a church? How would you articulate that or how would you speak yeah. into, that, into that world? Yeah. And again, this is going to come across fairly repetitive because it's similar to what I said. The first mark is the faithful exposition of scripture. Yeah. The faithful articulation of the gospel. Yeah. Right. So the word is central. Yeah. The second one is the right administration of the sacraments of sacraments. the Sacraments. Which always follows the right preaching of the word. Yeah. If you're preaching the word rightly, then the gathered church understands who they are and you baptize those who belong and you welcome them to the Lord's table. And the third one is the proper use of church discipline. Church discipline. Yeah, so, yep. but church discipline is just doing the right sacramentology because as you forbid someone from coming to the table of the Lord or you tell them to delay their baptism because you can see things in their life that are not right, mm. you're doing church discipline. Mm. And if you're, if you're administering the sacraments rightly, it's only because you're faithfully understanding and expositing the word, which are telling you how to... So, you know, and theologians kind of wrangle on this. It's like, are they three marks? Well, there's really just two, because right sacramentology is actually church discipline. Right. But are there two? Okay. There's actually just one, because if you're grounded in the word and faithfully proclaiming and living out the implications of the word, yep. the other two necessarily and inevitably follow. Yeah. So what you said was continuity with the New Testament. Yep. And... Great commission engagement. Great commission engagement. Yeah, yeah. very good. Um, we're almost at church. Yeah. This Sunday, we ha we're celebrating Hope's birthday. So in the theme of this carpool and the theme of Hope's birthday, we're having a big, a big morning tea, a big lunch afterwards. Are, are you preaching? Yeah. yeah. Craig is preaching. You can come see us there. 
yeah, that'll wrap up this week's carpool Q&A. Thanks for your time, Craig. Yeah, thanks, Founding man. pastor of Hope Reformed. We're glad to have you back. How good? How good? See you guys next week. Bless you.